Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Ashton Lattimore. Ashton is the editor-in-chief of PRISM, prismreports.org. PRISM was founded by Iara Peng. It is a BIPOC-led nonprofit news outlet focusing its reporting on stories underreported by national media in which Black, Indigenous, and people of color, women, and the LGBTQ community and other invisibilized groups are the experts on their lived experiences and fight for justice. The last sentence of their mission statement is PRISM, see the world differently. Ashton, you've had an interesting path. Let me begin by asking you to introduce yourself and explain what led you to become the editor-in-chief of this website. Sure. So I'm Ashton. I'm the editor-in-chief at PRISM. Um, I have had an interesting career path. I am a journalist turned lawyer turned journalist again. Uh, so I, I um, went into journalism right after college, during college really, um, and then took a break, I'll say, to, to practice law for about five years before returning to, to journalism, which is my, my first love. And, and what led me to PRISM specifically um, and, and taking a role at the helm of the organization was really just the opportunity to build something that is sorely needed um, within the world, within the journalism industry, just a place where people of color can come and see our stories um, and be the ones to tell our own stories. Um, so, so being a part of that felt really exciting and really important. What was your uh, journalism experience prior to this? Before this, um, I was freelancing for a few years, um, and then I was at the University of Pennsylvania. I was actually the managing editor at the law school um, for a year, uh, and then before I went to law school at News One, I was the lead editor there, uh, and then of course all through college and, and journalism school at Columbia, I was um, involved in you know various different you know internships and, and jobs and, and everything. Is there a life experience that connects with the uh, the idea of seeing the world differently for you? Is there a person? Is there a personal connection to to the idea of seeing the world differently and working for an organization like this? I think. I mean, it feels personal because I'm kind of the one of the people who's the target audience, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so seeing the world differently for me is is just kind of seeing more of myself, seeing more of my family, the people that I know and my communities um, within the stories that we report. So it, it feels personal in the way that um, my, my communities um, and the communities like mine are at the center in the way that we aren't really, uh, you know, in other, other outlets. The phrase uh, centering the voices is used in multiple places in the mission statement. I've noticed it in a number of the articles uh, that I've read on the websites. Uh, for the, the people that are listening, the students that are listening, what are you, what's the emphasis there? Why do you use that phrase? Uh, because I think the the word that's important there is is center. Uh, I think in a lot of um, United States kind of journalism, a lot of our political discourse, we have this understanding of who is at the center of our collective story, uh, who's at the center of of policy, uh, and it's not usually Black, Indigenous, and people of color. So really working to shift that narrative and put our communities at the center of our political discussions at the center of discussions about you know fights for social justice at the center of what discussions about what's possible what the future should look like and being the ones to lead in imagining that better future um, we think is is critical and, and really transformative so so that's really where our mission statement comes through in action uh, really it's about 
kind of transformative uh, narrative shift. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask because the story of certainly of the last, well, <laughs> last year plus, can you take me through the role of being editor-in-chief of this website from Tuesday, November 3rd to Saturday, Saturday November 7th? And any <laughs> ideas that came into your head as a result of what you saw? I think being editor-in-chief at that point was a lot like being a citizen at that point, um, you know, holding those two roles simultaneously and just going through going through the emotional trajectory that, that many of us went through um, for us um, and what it looked like in practice was that um, before the results came out, we planned to um, write a staff editorial about, you know, whatever the results were. So trying to anticipate what was going to happen uh, and then write the piece um, in response to it. And over the course of the week, that article went through so many different um, mood shifts. It started out very kind of dour uh, <laughs> and downbeat, <laughs> uh, and just gradually sort of the spirit kind of lifted a bit as the week went on and, and the results started to become a bit clearer. Uh, and that's where you got the piece that we ultimately ended up with, which is basically that the system didn't work in this election, our people did. Um, and really using, really using that space to highlight the work of communities of color that got us to um, the result, which, which we certainly hope will, will uh, facilitate a much better, safer future for all of us. And that uh, one of the cities that you're referring to is one that I believe that you're near, uh, Philadelphia. You're, you're coming to us from uh, Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, correct? Yep, just 15 minutes outside of Philly. Did you actually start writing uh, that piece, which I'll, I'll link to in the show notes, did you actually start writing it on Tuesday, November 3rd at night? I did, I did. Uh. <laughs> it was, um, <laughs> there wasn't a ton to work with at that point, yeah. and it wasn't super clear what direction things were headed in. Of course, there was a lot of reporting um, ahead of time that kind of prepared us for the idea that things would look one way on election day and would slowly change over the course of the week. But even having been warned about it, I think we can all agree the experience of it was somewhat different. So yes, we, we started writing that on on Tuesday um, and, and came up with like a very miserable draft on, on Wednesday. And, and then by Friday, I think we were in better shape and it was ready to publish on, on Saturday when the network called the election. The current uh, cover story, at least the last time I had checked your website, was uh, about Betsy DeVos, uh, not necessarily about her, but about her successor and the role of uh, the Department of Education moving forward and what her replacement would need to do. Can you tell us about that piece? Sure. I mean, this piece really gets into the fact that civil rights is one of the biggest education issues of our time, or education is one of the biggest civil rights issues of our time. I think you can frame it either way, um, but really holding responsible DeVos and whoever her, uh, her successor will be for recognizing the centrality of civil rights to education, uh, whether that's kind of spearheading suits that make sure students are being treated fairly or putting policies in place that ensure equity, both within schools and among schools in, in different parts of the country. Um, um, so really somewhat a catalog of, of DeVos's failures, but really more of a roadmap um, for what uh, the next person who's the Secretary of Education really needs to be focused on. And again, placing the, the concerns of, of students of color, parents of color, uh, and teachers in communities of color um, at the center. That certainly would have been one of the first things that, that I would have expected uh, your site to focus on. Uh, what are some of the other stories that I guess are kind of in the if you're willing to share them, the idea phase leading up to completion, uh, how do those and how do those come about uh, with with your writers? 
Sure. So one piece that we're working on right now is uh, in the aftermath of Proposition 22 in, in California, the passage of the law that that will allow um, basically gig workers to continue to be treated as independent contractors instead of employees who are entitled to benefits and all the usual labor protections. Um, so this is an impact um, a lot on Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, et cetera. Um, so really speaking to those drivers who um, in many cases disproportionately people of color, uh, you know, gig workers, low wage workers, uh, about what that means for them uh, and how they're going to be continuing the, the fight for, for labor justice going forward. And we also have some you know, immigration stories in the works looking at what's currently going on um, in detention centers, family detention where, where mothers and children are, are being infected with COVID um, and, and you know, being kept there on unsafe situations. So um, those are a couple of the things that we kind of have coming down the pike. How much of the site is focused on, on government accountability stories? Uh, a fair bit of it. You see a lot of that come through uh, in our, um, our immigration vertical. A lot of that is, is sort of straightforward government accountability, uh, accountability for what's happening within the detention centers, you know, what's happening with ICE and so on. Uh, that also shows up fairly frequently in our criminal justice reporting as well, um, accountability for what's happening within, within the prison systems, which I'm sure, as you know, have been um, really severely impacted by, by the COVID pandemic um, with many incarcerated people put at significant risk and, and many have died uh, as a result of government decisions not to move people out of, of these, these prisons. So uh, government accountability, holding, uh, holding folks accountable for social injustices is a big part of what we do. You have one reporter in particular who I think is, is extremely good at that. Uh, Tina Vasquez, an article that I read from her uh, this, I think, is a couple of months old, but I felt like it was important enough to bring up. It was called Who Built the Cages? That looked at the way that both the Trump and Obama administrations have, they didn't know what the right word here is, I put highly problematic histories with separating migrant children from their families and with immigrant communities. She basically warned Democrats about the potential for repeating mistakes made in the Obama administration. I would say a couple of reactions to that. One is, I read the New York Times, I read the Washington Post, I read my local paper, the Allentown Morning Call. This story had the detail of the Times and the Post, but I felt like it connected with me emotionally in a stronger way than something like a Times story or a Post story did. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about her passion for the subject and the, the passion for covering uh, immigration uh, issues at your website. Yeah, Tina's a longtime uh, expert immigration reporter, um, and she she brings that lens to the other reporting that she does as well, uh, you know, on reproductive justice, um, gender justice, workers' rights, and so on. So she's deeply rooted in, in communities of, of immigrant people, um, people who've experienced detention um, and been released and um, and so forth. So she she has the background and the subject matter knowledge to talk about this in a way um, that really speaks to that expertise, I think. Um, and, and to do so in a way, like you said, that, that connects emotionally, viscerally, because in all of her reporting, uh, she leads with the stories of the people who are impacted. So you're not going to see Tina or anybody who reports for PRISM, you know, in an immigration story, leading their story with, with quotes from 
people at who work at ICE. That's just not uh, that's not our point of view, uh, and we don't frankly think that it's terribly important um, what the folks at ICE are saying, um, especially if a lot of things they're saying are not true, which has turned out to be the case in, in several instances. So, so by leading um, uh, pretty much 100% of the time with the lived experiences of people uh, who are in immigrant communities who have been in detention, um, that really that really sets the framework for the way that Tina does her uh, immigration reporting. And I think that's what you saw coming through uh, in that story, because if you're leading with the people who are impacted, suddenly it's not so important whether or not, you know, the person who uh, built the cages or the person who's still caging people and deporting them has a D or an R next to their name. What, what matters is what's happening to people. Yeah, and she certainly held uh, both sides uh, accountable uh, in this and pledged to essentially do so uh, in the future. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org podcast, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. What are the characteristics, traits that you look for in your reporters? Uh, in our reporters, we look for people who um, have a strong commitment to social justice, who are interested in producing reporting that puts impacted people at the center of it. Certainly, you know, some degree of, of skill and, you know, and just interest in, interest in people, interest in people in their stories, uh, and also an interest in understanding the systems that are working together to, um, to produce the situations that people are in. But beyond that, we also really prize in ourselves just as a newsroom and also individually in our reporters, a commitment not just to showcase people's problems or the issues that they're that they're dealing with or even the fights for justice that they're in but also to showcase people's resiliency their joy um, you know the interesting and, and wonderful and exciting pieces of culture that come through in all these social justice spaces and and beyond so so someone that has a commitment not just to sort of problem focused reporting but really understanding whole communities I was going to get to the uh, to the cultural section uh, of your website is there a story there that you would like to spotlight Ooh, is there a story there I would like to spotlight? <laughs> uh, actually, there is. There's this. Uh, there's a photo essay that we did um, earlier in the fall about brass burlesque, which fuses performance art with social justice, and it's just. I mean, it's just a beautiful set of photos that also um, several of the performers wrote um, kind of an essay around the photos, explaining um, how uh, Black performers, Asian performers, um, Latinx performers fit into the history of burlesque um, in our culture, in our country. Um, it was just a really fascinating piece where you learn something um, about a piece of our culture that you might not have learned before, and you also get to look at some really neat pictures in the meantime. Um, and that was really, really exciting just to see them fusing social justice with with art in that way. Um, and that was actually part of a series that we did uh, on sex positivity and the arts, which, which features uh, a whole host of, um, it features original art, comics, um, and other pieces kind of diving into how people are using art to, to kind of bring forward the issue of sex positivity. I know that you have full-time staff, uh, but where do you find your other writers? Uh, we have contributing writers who work with us. Um, so there are people who contribute, you know, a piece or two to us a month on a regular basis. And 
we've been really glad to be able to add their voices to our site and add their their different perspectives. And in addition, of course, we have we have freelance writers who we work with. Um, some people on a more frequent basis. Some people kind of you know as one offs. Uh, and then freelance writers will come to us, you know, via you know they'll pitch us or we'll reach out to people to commission things from them if we're familiar with their work. So we've uh, got a wide and growing network of of journalists that that we really enjoy working with. And, and you also have a senior fellowship program, right? Yes, we do have a senior fellowship program. Uh, that's the program that allows us to bring um, really frontline movement leaders um, into our space and have them kind of help shape our coverage of the issues that matter to them uh, and also to write for us and, and to, to kind of have Prism as a platform to talk about the issues that matter to them. Um, we've had a stellar uh, set of senior fellows so far um, with folks like Patrice Cullors. Uh, we have Mary Hooks with us right now. Monica Ramirez just finished her senior fellowship with us. Uh, Latasha Brown, Maurice Mitchell, uh, Amy Allison, Kevin Killer, uh, just kind of an all-star group of people who we're really fortunate to, to, to be in community with them and to be able to feature their work on our site. In this, what is a crowded media landscape, uh, often a story either crosses your path quickly or it doesn't uh, cross it at all. Uh, how are you working to get eyeballs on some of the stories that you're doing? Um, a lot of the usual ways, you know, social media, um, some of the aggregator sites that we're working to, to get, get set up on, you know, Apple News and, and so forth. Um, but one way that we're working on, on kind of getting our stories in front of more people is also just by building partnerships with mission aligned um, other outlets. Uh, as a nonprofit, all of our our content is free to republish as long as you link back to us. So, you know, people can kind of take our stories, uh, the ones that interest them and, and republish them on their own websites. And, and that's more of a way for us to kind of reach more people. How much content is the site trying to put out per week? Uh, typically, we publish a story or two a, day, story or two a day. Uh, and then who you, me you mentioned before that you were the target audience. Uh, who, who is exactly is your target audience here? So our target audience is Black, Indigenous, people of color, specifically uh, civically engaged um, people, communities of color, uh, progressive communities of color, uh, people who, who care about the issues that we care about um, and who are part of the communities that we report on. Your staff, I mentioned, we talked about writers before, your organization is women of color led. Can you explain the, I guess, the, the intent with that and what that has meant uh, like to your group? Sure. So we're led um, by women of color, as you, <laughs> as you just mentioned. Um, and, and just what that means is just that, you know, we're affirming the leadership of women of color in journalism. We're affirming the leadership of women of color in our newsroom. Uh, and I think that uh, the perspective that we bring to this work really shows up um, in the kind of coverage that we produce, in the kind of stories that we produce, and in the way that we do our reporting. Um, you know, if you change what your newsroom looks like, you're going to get a different mix of stories and you're going to get a different mix of um, modes of reporting and different, different personalities. And um, we think it's really important as an outlet that primarily reports on communities of color for our newsroom to reflect that, especially in our leadership. And how do you define success for, for the website and for the group as a whole? I mean, success, they're, they're always kind of the, the usual metrics, like growing, growing our audience and, and making an impact. But 
I think for us, the biggest piece of it is really to reach and empower the communities that we're covering. Um, we're thinking about how can our coverage be of service to these communities? How can we help people figure out uh, the best ways to exercise the rights that they already have and how they can fight for new ones? Uh, how can we uh, affirm people's agency in doing that? Um, how can we spark resistance? How can we spark new ideas and new ways of thinking about what's possible? So, so I think for us, a success is going to look like um, certainly our communities finding the content to be resonant with them and also for us to have an impact at the level of narrative shift within the larger media landscape. Have you had anything in the way of town halls or connections with your community to try to establish uh, relationships further and to, to hear from them uh, as you go? So uh, we've started doing uh, a few live video events. So those have been um, opportunities for, for readers and, and other folks in our communities to connect directly with the people who are in, in the stories that we, um, that we tell on the website. So those have been um, kind of our, our first foray into sort of community focused events. Um, we're, we're in a pandemic though, obviously. So everything right. is is all video at this point, but yep. uh, hopefully when in another, another world, another year, uh, we can we can start expanding out in, in another direction and connect with people more directly. Is there a story or two in particular that have really resonated with people? I think uh, one of the ones that that really resonated strongly uh, was a piece by Tina um, on the this doctor in Georgia who was um, conducting sterilizations and other unnecessary um, gynecological procedures on women who are in immigrant detention. That story, I think, uh, really highlighted for folks what, what goes on in immigrant detention and, and what's allowed to happen um, in spaces that are not um, receiving proper oversight and basically in spaces where there are populations who are already treated as vulnerable or disposable within our culture. So that was really resonant. Uh, and then actually a, a follow-up story where, where we kind of widened the lens and came out and looked at the surrounding community around the detention center where this doctor was operational um, and learning that not only was he doing this to uh, the women who were in immigrant detention, but also he was doing unnecessary procedures on other women in this sort of rural community. So at that point it kind of becomes a larger story you know not just about 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 detention which is important enough on its own but also about rural health care uh, and also about you know sort of medical medical abuses and how they're allowed to flourish in places where people don't have a lot of options to tie it back full circle it sounds like uh, the kind of story and kind of series of stories where after reading them you would see the world differently much like seems to be the, the goal of the site. Uh, one or two other things I wanted to bring up. You wrote about the role of journalism in solving racial injustice for Pointer recently. I'll read one sentence from that. If what's happening in our communities is relegated outside the narrative frame until we happen to do something that directly impacts the protagonists, parenthesis, white people, journalists can and often do miss years of organizing strategy and resilience within social movements and otherwise. Uh, so I would ask you uh, to just explain the message that you were trying to get across in the piece. I, I feel like that summed it up in, in some regards and how you see journalism evolving. So the idea behind that piece um, is largely 
about the power of story. I, I don't know how obvious it is coming through there, but I'm in the middle of writing a novel. So I think a lot about story structure uh, and how that shows up in the other part of my life, which is journalism. So as I was kind of working through those ideas, um, I came to understand the way that, that story structure is functioning in journalism, which is a form of story. It's the stories that we read every day, the stories that are telling us what's happening in our communities and what's possible. So if you take an entire group of people, people of color and you treat them as villains or you treat them as side characters, you're going to get a distorted sense of what their inner lives are like, what their communities are like, and also what's possible for them to do, what it's possible for them to have. Uh, so um, this piece was really about calling on, you know, my fellow journalists and the rest of the industry to understand the power of the collective story that we're building um, through the coverage that we're producing every day and shift the frame so that we're not uh, treating one group as the protagonists and everybody else as something less than. I feel like since I started this podcast, I've seen that there are a lot of a uh, number of organizations that are that are trying to do that. Are you seeing a, a positive movement in that regard? Uh, I am. There, there are so many, so many wonderful outlets out there today um, for us, for us all to read. Um, many of which I admire a great deal. So I think we are moving. Um, some of us are moving in the right direction uh, and there's increased space for more organizations and um, more places for journalists of color to, to do the important work that we're doing. Uh, so that's, that's heartening. I'm going to reverse the two, the, the two questions that I typically ask to close. Uh, is there a journalism organization that you would like to salute? Sure. Uh, I would like to salute uh, Zora Magazine, which is a wonderful publication that I read all the time, and uh, Scalawag Magazine, which is based in the South um, and who, who really has uh, a somewhat similar ethos, I would say, with really strong uh, people-centered reporting um, that, that focuses on people of color, communities of color in the South. Um, so I just, I really admire and enjoy the work of, of both of those organizations. Can you uh, give some advice? I would like uh, for this one, we, we always ask for one piece of advice. How about the advice of someone who was in another field who went back to journalism to lead a journalism organization? What advice would you have for someone who chooses to do something like that? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's see, uh, strap in. It's a wild ride uh, transitioning back into, <laughs> into this industry after some time away. But um, I think the advice I would give is that um, you probably know more than you think you do. A lot of the skills that you pick up um, in another industry, including subject matter knowledge, which you might bring back with you um, into journalism can be really valuable. So, so don't sell yourself short. There are plenty of people who have uh, been in journalism, done something else and come back or who started off somewhere else and jumped in later in life. Uh, and it doesn't need to be any kind of a deterrent to flourishing in this industry. And I, I think can be really valuable. Be confident in what you bring to the table, certainly. Ashton Lattimore, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. There are a lot of good stories to be found in taking the approach that PRISM takes. You can have a balance between government accountability and sharing the joy of the people in their battles against social injustices. To learn more about PRISM, you can go to their website at prismreports.org. They have a new cover story up about the challenges of trying to live through the pandemic in Puerto Rico. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole. Dr. Cole taught at my alma mater, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years and taught hundreds of future journalists. That includes many who work to hold their governments accountable. 
Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. If you're interested in following along with us, follow us on Twitter at Journalism Salute, S-A-L-U-T. There are more episodes to come. Thank you for tuning in.